Chapter 5 of Don O'Hara, The Girl Who Laughed. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Leanne Howlett. Don O'Hara, The Girl Who Laughed by Edna Ferber. Chapter 5 The Absurd Becomes Serious. I can understand the emotions of a broken-down war-horse that is hitched to a vegetable wagon. I am going to Milwaukee to work. It is a thing to make the gods hold their sides and roll down from their mountain peaks with laughter. After New York, Milwaukee. Of course, von Gerhard is to blame, but I think even he sees the humor of it. It happened in this way, on a day when I was indulging in a particularly greenery-yallery fit of gloom. Nora rushed into my room. I think I was mooning over some old papers or letters or ribbons or some such truck in the charming, knife-turning way that women have when they are blue. "'Out with yous!' cried Nora. "'On with your hat and coat. I've just had a wire from Ernst von Gerhard. He's coming, and you look like an underdone dill pickle. You aren't half as blooming as when he was here in August, and this is October. Get out and walk until your cheeks are so red that von Gerhard will refuse to believe that this fiery-faced, puffing, bouncing creature is the green and limp thing that huddled in a chair a few months ago. Out ye go. And out I went. Hatless, I strode countrywards, leaving paved streets and concrete walks far behind. There were drifts of fallen leaves all about, and I scuffled through them drearily, trying to feel gloomy and old and useless and failing because of the tang in the air, and the red and gold wonder of the frost-kissed leaves, and the regular pump-pump of good red blood that was coursing through my body, as per Nora's request. In a field at the edge of the town, just where city and country began to have a bowing acquaintance, the college boys were at football practice. Their scarlet sweaters made gay patches of color against the dull gray-brown of the autumn grass. Seven, eighteen, two, four, called a voice. There followed a scuffle, a creaking of leather on leather, a thud. I watched them, a bit enviously, walking backwards until a twist in the road hid them from view. That same twist transformed my path into a real country road, a brown, dusty, monotonous Michigan country road that went severely about its business, never once stopping to flirt with the blushing autumn woodland at its left, or to dally with the dimpling ravine at its right. Now if that were an English country road, thought I, a sociably inclined, happy-go-lucky, out-for-pleasure English country road, one might expect something of it. On an English country road this would be the psychological moment for the appearance of a blonde god in grey tweed. What a delightful time of it Richard Legallian's hero had on his quest. He could not stroll down the most innocent-looking lane, he might not loiter among the most out-of-the-way path. He never ambled over the barest piece of country road that he did not come face to face with some witty and lovely woman creature also in search of things unconventional, and able to quote charming lines from Chaucer to him. Ah, but that was England, and this is America. I realize it sadly as I step out of the road to allow a yellow milk wagon to rattle past. The red letters on the yellow milk cart inform the reader that it is the property of August Schimmelfennig of Hickory Grove. The Schimmelfennig eye may be seen staring down upon me from the bit of glass in the rear as the cart rattles ahead, doubtless being suspicious of hatless young women wandering along country roads at dusk, alone. There was that in the staring eye to which I took exception. It wore an expression which made me feel sure that the mouth below it was all a grin, if I could but have seen it. It was bad enough to be stared at by the fishy, shimple eye, 
but to be grinned at by the Shimplefinnick mouth. I resented it. In order to show my resentment, I turned my back on the Shimplefinnick cart and pretended to look up the road which I had just traveled. I pretended to look up the road, and then I did look in earnest. No wonder the Shimplefinnick eye and mouth had worn the leering expression. The blonde god in gray tweed was swinging along toward me. I knew that he was blonde because he wore no hat, and the last rays of the October sun were making a little halo effect about his head. I knew that his gray clothes were tweed because every well-regulated hero on a country road wears tweed. It's almost a religion with them. He was not near enough to make a glance at his features possible. I turned around and continued my walk. The yellow cart with its impudent Schimmelfennig leer was disappearing in a cloud of dust. Shades of the Duchess and Bertha M. Clay. How does one greet a blonde god in gray tweed on a country road when one has him? The blonde god solved the problem for me. Hi, he called. I did not turn. There was a moment's silence. Then there came a shrill, insistent whistle of the kind that is made by placing four fingers between the teeth. It is a favorite with the gallery gods. I would not have believed that gray tweed gods stooped to it. Hi, called the voice again, very near now. Liebergott, never have I seen so proud a young woman. I whirled about to face von Gerhard, a strangely boyish and unprofessional-looking von Gerhard. Young man, I said severely, have you been a follerin' of me? For miles, groaned he as we shook hands. You walk like a grenadier. I am sent by the charming Nora to tell you that you are to come home to mix the salad dressing for there is company for supper. I am the company. I was still a bit dazed. But how did you know which road to take? And when? Wunderbar, Nictoir, laughed von Gerhard. But really quite simple. I come in on an earlier train than I had expected, chat a moment with Sister Nora, inquire after the health of my patient, and am told that she is running away from a horde of blue devils, quote your charming sister, that have swarmed about her all day. What direction did her flight take? I asked. Sister Nora shrugs her shoulders and presumes that it is the road which shows the reddest and yellowest autumn colors. That road will be your road. So. Pooh! How simple! That is the second disappointment you have given me today. But how is that possible? The first has not had time to happen. The first was yourself, I replied rudely. I had been longing for an adventure, and when I saw you way up the road, such an unusual figure for our Michigan country roads, I forgot that I was a disappointed old grass widder with a history, and I grew young again, and my heart jumped up into my throat, and I says to myself, says I, enter the hero, and it was only you. Von Gerhard stared a moment, a curious look on his face. Then he laughed one of those rare laughs of his, and I joined him because I was strangely young, light, and happy to be alive. You walk and enjoy walking, yes? asked Von Gerhard, scanning my face. Your cheeks, they are like, well, as unlike the cheeks of the German girls as Diana's are unlike a dairymaid's. And the nerfs, they no longer jump, eh? Oh, they jump, but not with weariness. They jump to get into action again. From a life of too much excitement, I have gone to the other extreme. I shall be dead of ennui in another six months. Ennui, mused he, and you are, how is it, twenty-eight years, yes? Hm. There was a world of exasperation in the last exclamation. I am a thousand years old, it made me exclaim, a million. I will prove to you that you are sixteen, declared von Gerhard calmly. We had come to a fork in the road. 
At the right the narrower road ran between two rows of great maples that made an arch of golden splendor. The frost had kissed them into a gorgeous radiance. "'Sunshine Avenue,' announced von Gerhard. "'It beckons us away from home and supper and salad dressing and duty, but who knows what we shall find at the end of it.' "'Let's explore,' I suggested. "'It is splendidly golden enough to be enchanted.' We entered the yellow canopied pathway. "'Let us pretend this is Germany, yes?' pleaded von Gerhard. This golden pathway will end in a neat little glass-roofed restaurant, with tables and chairs outside, and comfortable German papas and mamas and pigtail children sitting at the tables, drinking coffee or beer. There will be stout waiters and a red-faced host, and we will seat ourselves at one of the tables, and I will wave my hand, and one of the stout waiters will come flying. Will you have coffee, Fräulein, or beer? It sounds prosaic, but it is very, very good, as you will see. Pathways in Germany always end in coffee and kuchen and waiters and white aprons. But, oh no, I exclaimed, for his mood was infectious. This is France, please. The golden pathway will end in a picturesque little French farm with a dairy, and in the doorway of the farmhouse there will be a red-skirted peasant woman with a white cap and a baby on her arm, and sabots. Oh, surely she will wear sabots. "'Most certainly she will wear sabots,' von Gerhard said heatedly, "'and blue-knitted stockings, and the baby's name is Mimi.' "'We had taken hands and were skipping down the pathway now "'like two excited children. "'Let's run,' I suggested, and run we did, like two mad creatures, "'until we rounded a gentle curve and brought up, "'panting, within a foot of a decrepit rail fence. "'The rail fence enclosed a stubbly, lumpy field. "'The field was inhabited by an inquiring cow.' Von Gerhard and I stood quite still, hand in hand, gazing at the cow. Then we turned slowly and looked at each other. "'This pathway of glorified maples ends in a cow,' I said solemnly, at which we both shrieked with mirth, leaning on the decrepit fence and mopping our eyes with our handkerchiefs. "'Did I not say you were sixteen? taunted Von Gerhard. We were getting surprisingly well acquainted. "'Such a scolding as we shall get. It will be quite dark before we are home.' Nora will be tearing her hair. It was a true prophecy. As we stampeded up the steps, the door was flung open, disclosing a tragic figure. Such a stake, wailed Nora, and it has been done for hours and hours, and now it looks like a piece of fried ear. Where have you two driveling idiots been? And mushrooms, too. She means that the ruined stake was further enhanced by mushrooms, I explained in response to von Gerhard's bewildered look. We marched into the house, trying not to appear like sneak-thieves. Max, pipe in mouth, surveyed us blandly. "'Fine color you've got, Don,' he remarked. "'There is such a thing as overdoing this health business,' snapped Nora, with a great deal of acidity for her. "'I didn't tell you to make them purple, you know.' Max turned to von Gerhard. "'Now what does she mean by that, do you suppose, eh, Ernst?' "'Softly, brother, softly,' whispered von Gerhard. When women exchange remarks that apparently are simple, and yet that you, a man, cannot understand, then know there is a woman's war going on, and step softly and hold your peace. Aberutik. Calm was restored with the appearance of the steak, which was found to have survived the period of waiting, and to be incredibly juicy and tender. Presently we were all settled once more in the great beamed living room, Sis at the piano, the two men smoking their after-dinner cigars with that idiotic expression of contentment which always adorns the masculine face on such occasions. I looked at them, at those three who had done so much for my happiness and well-being, and something within me said, Now, speak now. 
Nora was playing very softly, so that the spalpeens upstairs might not be disturbed. I took a long breath and made the plunge. Nora, if you'll continue the slow music, I'll be much obliged. The time has come, the walrus said, to talk of many things. Don't be absurd, said Nora over her shoulder, and went on playing. I never was more serious in my life, good folks is all. I've got to be. This butterfly existence has gone on long enough. Nora and Max and Mr. Dr. Man, I am going away. Nora's hands crashed down on the piano keys with a jangling discord. She swung about to face me. Not New York again, Don. Not New York. I am afraid so, I answered. Max, bless his great brotherly heart, rose and came over to me and put a hand on my shoulder. Don't you like it here, girlie? Want to be hauled home on a shutter again, do you? You know that as long as we have a home, you have one. We need you here. But I shook my head. From his chair at the other side of the room I could feel von Gerhard's gaze fixed upon us. He had said nothing. Need me? No one needs me. Don't worry, I'm not going to become maudlin about it. But I don't belong here, and you know it. I have my work to do. Nora is the best sister that a woman ever had. And, Max, you're an angel brother-in-law. But how can I stay on here and keep my self-respect? I took Max's big hand in mine and gathered courage from it. But you have been working, wailed Nora, every morning. And I thought the book was coming on beautifully. And I'm sure it will be a wonderful book, Don, dear. You are so clever. Oh, the book. It is too uncertain. Perhaps it will go, but perhaps it won't. And then what? It will be months before the book is properly polished off and then I may peddle it around for more months. No, I can't afford to trifle with uncertainties. Every newspaper man or woman writes a book. It's like having the measles. There is not a newspaper man living who does not believe in his heart that if he could only take a month or two away from the telegraph desk or the police run, he could write the book of the year, not to speak of the great American play. Why, just look at me. I've only been writing seriously for a few weeks, and already the best magazines in the country are refusing my manuscripts daily. Don't joke, said Nora, coming over to me. I can't stand it. Why not? Much better than weeping, isn't it? And anyway, I'm no subject for tears any more. Dr. Von Gerhard will tell you how well and strong I am. Won't you, Herr Doctor? Well, said Von Gerhard in his careful, deliberate English, since you ask me, I should say that you might last about one year in New York. There. What did I tell you? cried Nora. What utter blither, I scoffed, turning to glare at von Gerhard. Gently, warned Max, such disrespect to the man who pulled you back from the edge of the yawning grave only six months ago. Yawning fiddlesticks, snapped I elegantly. There was nothing wrong with me except that I wanted to be fussed over, and I have been, and I've loved it, but it must stop now. I rose and walked over to the table and faced von Gerhard, sitting there in the depths of a great chair. You do not seem to realize that I am not free to come and go and work and play and laugh and live like other women. There is my living to make. And there is Peter Orme. Do you think that I could stay on here like this? Oh, I know that Max is not a poor man, but he is not a rich man either. And there are the children to be educated. And besides, Max married Nora O'Hara, not the whole O'Hara tribe. I want to go to work. I am not a free woman, but when I am working I forget and am almost happy. I tell you I must be well again. I will be well. I am well. At the end of which dramatic period I spoiled the whole effect by bowing my head on the table and giving way to a fit of weeping, 
such as I had not had since the days of my illness. "'Looks like it,' said Max, at which I decided to laugh, and the situation was saved. It was then that von Gerhard proposed a thing that set us staring at him in amused wonder. He came over and stood looking down at us, his hands outspread upon the big library table, his body bent forward in an attitude of eager intentness. I remember thinking what wonderful hands they were, true indexes of the man's character, broad, white, surgeonly hands, the fingers almost square at the tips. They were hands as different from those slender, nervous, unsteady, womanly hands of Peter Orme as any hands could be, I thought. They were hands made for work that called for delicate strength, if such a paradox could be. Hands to cling to, to gain courage from, hands that spelled power and reserve. I looked at them fascinated, as I often had done before, and thought that I had never seen such sane hands. "'You have done me the honor to include me in this little family conclave,' began Ernst von Gerhard. "'I am going to take advantage of your trust. I shall give you some advice, a thing I usually keep for unpleasant professional occasions. Do not go back to New York.' "'But I know New York. In New York, the newspaper part of it knows me. Where else can I go?' You have your book to finish. You could never finish it there, is it not so? I'm afraid I shrugged my shoulders. It was all so much harder than I had expected. What did they want me to do? I asked myself bitterly. Von Gerhard went on. Why not go where the newspaper work will not be so nerve-wracking, where you still might find time for this other work that is dear to you and that may bring its reward in time? He reached out and took my hand into his great steady clasp. Come to the happy, healthy German town called Milwaukee, yes? Ach, you may laugh, but newspaper work is newspaper work the world over, because men and women are just men and women the world over. But there you could live sanely, and work not too hard, and there would be spare hours for the book that is near your heart. And I, I will speak of you to Norberg, of the Post. And on Sundays, if you are good, I may take you along the marvelous lake drives in my little red runabout, yes? Aber wunderbar those drives are. So. Then, Milwaukee, shrieked Max and Nora and I together. After New York, Milwaukee. Laugh, said von Gerhard quite composedly. I give you until tomorrow morning to stop laughing. At the end of that time it will not seem quite so amusing. No joke is so funny after one has contemplated it for twelve hours. The voice of Nora, the temptress, sounded close to my ear. Don, dear, just think how many million miles nearer you would be to Max and me and home. Oh, you have all gone mad. The thing is impossible. I shan't go back to a country sheet in my old age. I suppose that in two more years I shall be editing a mother's column on an agricultural weekly. Norberg would be delighted to get you, mused von Gerhard, and it would be day work instead of night work. And you would send me a weekly bulletin on Don's health, wouldn't you, Ernst? pleaded Nora and you teach her to drink beer, and she shall grow so fat that the Spalpeens won't know their auntie. At last. How much do they pay? I asked in desperation, and the thing that had appeared so absurd at first began to take on the shape of reality. Von Gerhard did speak to Norberg of the Post, and I am to go to Milwaukee next week. The skeleton of the book manuscript is stowed safely away in the bottom of my trunk, and Nora has filled in the remaining space with sundry flannels and hot water bags and medicine flasks, so that I feel like a schoolgirl on her way to boarding school, instead of like a seasoned old newspaper woman with a capital past and a shaky future. I wish that I were chummier with the Irish saints. I need them now. 
End of chapter 5